Amen. Hallelujah. Glory be to our great God. I'm, uh, I'm glad I can be here this morning. Um, James and Michael both had a very long week with GA, so I'm glad that they gave me the opportunity uh, to bring the word this morning. We're going to be continuing in John. So uh, John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8 is where we're going to be this morning. Before we read God's word, I have a question. Have you ever run out of gas? Uh, now, there's no need to raise hands. I'm not trying to shame anyone here. Uh, and I'm not talking emotionally or spiritually yet. I'm talking about if you've ever been driving down the road and your car just starts to come to a stop, your engine sputters, and you slowly roll to a stop. This happened to me and a friend of mine a couple of years ago. We were driving down Highway 11. We missed one of the first stations. We're like, okay, we'll make the next one. We get to the police station and the engine just stops. And we somehow managed to coast into this uh, gas station right here at the corner. But um, it's a terrifying feeling, right? You, you don't know, if, if, especially if you're not near the gas station, you're going to have to walk. What's going to happen? It's, uh, it's debilitating, right? Without fuel, a vehicle can't function, right? Whether it runs off of diesel, gasoline, or even electricity, our cars have to have a power source to do anything. Um, without it, it's just a big piece of lifeless, useless metal. Have you ever considered that we humans are a little, are kind of similar? Without a power source, we cannot function, or at least not as well. Kind of similar to the uh, new commercial with Tom Brady. I don't know if you guys have seen it. He sits down in a car, uh, rental car service, and he actually plugs up to where the electric cars plug up to, and there's a lady walking by. Is that Tom Brady? He's recharging his batteries, because um, he's not a real human. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we feel like that sometimes. We feel like we need to recharge, right? Our passage today is going to deal with that. It's going to talk about the importance of a power source, having the right fuel behind our actions. Judas and the disciples, they forget this in this passage, but Jesus reminds them. Have you ever forgotten it? I know I, I struggle with it. Um, if, you're, if, if that's you, right, if you find up, if you, if you feel... Like you wind up feeling tired, worn out, broken down on the side of the road. If this is you, friends, you and I, we're in the right place this morning. Let's turn to our scripture together. John chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us here to your house of worship. And we pray that you would bless reading and preaching of your word, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would convict us of sin, 
that would encourage us and build us up, draw us closer to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we open up uh, to John 12, 1 through 8, we, we begin to see some context, some important contextual clues, right? John tells us that it was six days before the Passover. Now, if you follow through the rest of John, you realize that this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's going, on the, the night before, he goes to the cross, he has the Last Supper, and this is the beginning of that final week for Jesus. And as he is beginning this last week, he comes to a place called Bethany. Now, if you remember, we were just talking about Jesus being in Bethany. As John reminds us, uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead in Bethany. Uh, but Jesus had gone to Ephraim, a place in the wilderness prior to this, to be with his disciples and to kind of prepare for this final stretch of his ministry. So coming out of the wilderness, he returns to Bethany. Well, why, why Bethany? We ask that question, why? Well, Bethany was a town very close to Jerusalem. Uh, it's a, a little bit over two miles away. It was almost considered a part of Jerusalem. But there was a beautiful thing about Bethany for Jesus. It was guarded by a mountain. So everyone in Jerusalem right now, especially the religious leaders, they wanted Jesus. They wanted to kill him or at least bring him up on trial. But this place, being in Bethany, allowed him to be secluded, to prepare for the battle that was ahead. Remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He's about to wage war for the, for the souls of his people. So not only was Bethany geographically beneficial, but it was also the home of some of his closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And uh, what do they do when their friend who has just raised their brother from the dead comes into town? They have him over for dinner. So this is where uh, John began, continues uh, with the dinner. John describes this scene. They're at uh, a house, and Martha is serving. Now, as you may remember from earlier in some of the gospel accounts, Martha is rebuked uh, when she tries to rebuke Jesus for not telling Mary to help her. Right? She's serving, she's anxious about it, and she tells Jesus to get Mary to help her. At this point, Martha's serving is good. The reason why we can say that is because she is loving Jesus and she is sharing that love with Jesus. She is showing her love by serving. This is actually an honorable thing for her to do, and she is blessing the Lord through it. And it's essential for her here. To have dinner, they need, a, they need someone to help serve. So Martha gets this honor of serving. Well, what's Lazarus doing? We hear, we see John saying that Lazarus was reclining with him, Jesus, at table. Now, we don't often use the word reclining. The only time I can think of it is when I'm thinking about a lazy boy. Um, but the word here, reclining, is, is translated as reclining for a specific, it's, it's, it's the Greek word, it's translated as reclining for a specific reason. You see, it's, it's carrying the meaning of both eating a meal, but also relaxing together. You might say, well, what about sitting? Why can't we just use the word sitting to describe what they're doing here? I would argue that sitting doesn't capture the full meaning of this word and what's going on here. Well, why do I say this? Well, I know for me and for many of you, I think, uh, we often eat our meals in haste. We eat them as quickly as we can. We get down at the table and we shovel the food in our mouth as we continue on with life. Now, maybe part of that is because we have busy lives and, you know, there's something to that. But this meal is special 
Jesus is reclining. He's sitting down and enjoying time together with his friends. That's what it means to recline at the table. And that's what they're talking about here. But have you ever, going back to what I mentioned about being in, eating in haste, have you ever noticed that phenomenon, right? We, why, is, why is eating together, or at least enjoying time together at the table, why is it hard? Well, I recently came across a statistic from a Dr. Ann Fischel, who is a pediatric psychiatrist in Boston. Uh, I don't know Ms. Fischel, I don't know if she's a Christian or not, but either way, her research is fascinating. She's writing a book about eating dinner together, and she says this, uh, speaking on a Harvard Education podcast, she says, only 30% of families regularly eat dinner together, despite the family mealtime being hugely beneficial for kids. Only 30%. Why is it that our families, we are only eating together, uh, 30% of our families eating together? Well, you know, it could be a number of factors. Busyness, we have screens everywhere distracting us, sports, extracurriculars, our job schedule, all these things, right? They, they come and go, but what's at stake? Relationship with our kids, our community and our family, the covenant community, all of these things start in your home, in my home. This community begins at home, and eating together is a vital part of that. Later in the interview, uh, Ms. Fischel adds another critical point to her statement. While only 30% of families regularly eat together, Fischel says, talking specifically about teenagers, when kids are given the choice or when they are asked in a survey, would you rather eat with your parents or by yourself in front of a screen or with your peers, 80% chose their parents. 80% chose their parents over a screen or over their friends. Why is that? We are made for rich relationships. We are made for the family. It's in our DNA. It's calling out. Jesus is calling to us. Recline with me at table. Sit with me. Enjoy my presence. So, friends, what does it look like for us to recline at the table with Jesus in our daily life? Sadly, just like our own dinner time, often our spiritual life may resemble our daily meals, eating in haste, right? I know I often get trapped in the busyness of life thinking, what can I do next? How can I do more? How can I be more productive? When Jesus is saying to you and to me, recline at the table with me. Enjoy my presence. Let us enjoy our time together. So it begs the question, what does it look like for you to recline at the table with Jesus? Um, in 2017, I started vocational ministry here as an intern, but through the organization called RYM, Reformed Youth Ministries. Now, um, every year, a part of that uh, program, I go to a leadership training, and one evening is set aside for the interns to go out to dinner together. The whole purpose of this dinner is simply to enjoy our time together, because we know we need that community. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you have sat around the table at a family gathering. Maybe it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, and you've enjoyed time together. Maybe it's a, a date with a spouse or a good friend Maybe you get this on a typical Tuesday night and you're lucky. But whatever the case may be for you, when you think about those times of sitting at the table enjoying each other's presence and the joy that brings, I want you to imagine that same time spent with Jesus. 
Friends, this is what we have to look forward to at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the end of time when Jesus comes to claim his bride. But it is also this intimacy, this closeness, this relationship that we have right now with Jesus. Too often I find my time with Jesus is hurried and businesslike. As if I need things to, I need to check things off the list, right? Sometimes our prayers are short and efficient. But is that all they should be limited to? If my wife and I only ever communicated in short, efficient statements like, did you turn off the lights? Did you uh, go mail those thank you cards? Uh, have you been to the bank yet? Right? If, we, if that was all we ever talked about, our relationship would be seriously lacking, right? Friends, this is, this is true of our relationship with Jesus as well. We must slow down and find time to be with Jesus. If we do not, our relationship will begin to feel dry business-like, out of gas. Friends, Jesus doesn't primarily want your work. He wants your heart. He wants true intimacy with you, not your productivity. I know this concept is difficult for us to grasp. It's hard for me. Even working in ministry, our culture says the exact opposite. It says work, 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 but Jesus says rest in me. Jesus wants you to simply sit and enjoy his presence and to be with him, to know him. So can this really be true? Is a relationship with Jesus more important than doing? Let's continue to look at our passage, going to verse 3. In verse 3, we see Mary doing a wonderful thing, giving a wonderful, loving gift to Jesus. She takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. This, this gift is an extravagant gift. This, uh, this ointment is very expensive. Uh, John tells us it was, on his, it, was, it was placed on his feet. The other gospel accounts say feet, head. Either way, Mary is doing a beautiful and extravagant thing for Jesus here. Along with this extravagance of this oil, John notes that the house was filled with the fragrance of it. That it was a, a strong smell. This was not just a little dab of ointment. Mary is pouring this ointment, this expensive ointment out on Jesus' feet. Again, it's an extravagant, extravagant gift. Um, I don't know what nard smells like. I've never smelled it before. But I can kind of imagine in my head, if you've ever been in a middle school boy's locker room, that wave of axe that hits you in the face when you walk in. Um, I, I imagine that the fragrance was that strong. Maybe not that bad. Maybe it was a good fragrance, but it was strong. It was a strong fragrance. Again, pointing out the extravagance of this beautiful gift that Mary is giving to Jesus. But this extravagance, it doesn't stop with simply the anointing. No, Mary unbinds her hair and cleans Jesus' feet with her hair. Why the hair? Ask the question, right? Why is Mary unbinding her hair? Why could she not find a towel? Mary wipes the oil with her hair. This, this gesture this, that Mary is doing is an amazing gesture of humility. Women in ancient Israel never unbound their hair in public. It was always pulled back, and it was a, it was a rude gesture to do it in front of someone that you were not in family with. You were not a member of their family. Her total humility here before her Lord is on display. She is 
giving this extravagant gift and then saying to Jesus, I am yours. Do with me what you will. You have all of me. Mary is giving everything to her Lord and Savior, Jesus. Why was she doing this? For the same reason they all invited Jesus over for dinner. Because they loved him. And they're thankful. Jesus is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you imagine the gratitude they must feel to him? How can they ever repay him? Yes, it's true there is nothing they can do to ever repay Jesus. But does that stop them? No. They do everything they possibly can to thank Jesus and show him their love. You see, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their actions are a reflection of their heart. They love Jesus, and they know Jesus loves them. And they're willing to do everything they can to demonstrate their love. Not to earn his love, but to show the love they have for him in their heart. So while, yes, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are serving Christ in this instance, their service is being fueled. They are acting out of their love for him. It's in their heart. It is their relationship with him that is fueling these wonderful, beautiful acts of love. Friends, though we may not always realize it, we have as much reason to be grateful as they did. If we are in Christ, Jesus has raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life, bringing us out of a state of death similar to Lazarus and suffering into the wonderful state of life and peace. We can never repay him for this. There is nothing we can do, but that doesn't mean we should stop trying to serve him. On the contrary, we should give everything we have to him, like Mary, making ourselves lower even than a servant. But it begs the question of us, what gifts, what gifts can we offer to the Lord? Maybe we can't give something extravagant. Is the Lord going to be harsh on us? No. Friends, Jesus is concerned about your heart, not about what you give. The same way a father is overjoyed when he is given an art project from his four-year-old, Jesus is overjoyed when we give him all we can. This brings us to our last point, the loving heart that's on display in all of these people here at the dinner. It's not difficult for us to see that, that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus love Jesus. They love him and they're thankful for him. But we come to Judas and his complaint and we see Jesus' interaction with him and it can be confusing to some degree. It makes us question, what does Jesus mean? The poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. But before we get into that statement, let's examine what's going on here. So Judas and the other disciples are here. They're at this dinner, and Judas brings up the complaint that this fragrance, this perfume, should have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, 300 denarii would have been 300 days worth of work from the typical day laborer. So this was a large amount of money that this ointment was worth. And so Judas wanted to sell it, to give to the poor. Now, John tells us that he really didn't want to give it to the poor. He wanted the money. He was a thief. 
We know this from what happens later on, but John is just telling us again. Judas doesn't really care about the poor. He just wants a cut of this big payday. But now we finally get to hear from our Savior. As Mary is getting uh, rebuked by Judas, Jesus steps in. Jesus says, leave her alone. He's defending Mary. And he continues, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. This, this ointment, Jesus is saying, is, for, is intended for his burial. He is, again, prophesying that he is going to die. Remember, it's the last week of his life. He knows what's coming. He knows the horror that's about to be inflicted on him. The rest of his disciples, they don't know all of this. Even Mary would not know the full extent of what she is doing. But Jesus is taking this beautiful gift that Mary is giving him and using it to fulfill the prophecy, fulfill the promises that he has for his people, that he would die for his people. He says it's Mary's to give and it's good and right for her to use it to serve him. He rebukes Judas, but then he continues with a difficult statement. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What does he mean by this? We can try to explain it away by saying that, well, he was talking to Judas, and Judas's heart was in the wrong place. Jesus knew this. So he was just referring to Judas. But if we look at the original text in the Greek, this, this response is not just directed to Judas. These, uh, all these yous in here are actually plural. And uh, so that's why I love, I love being a, uh, from the South, is when I read this, I can read it in my own dialect and, and read what Jesus is saying here. He's actually saying a little bit of the plural here in the you, so I'll give you the Southern version. For the poor y'all always have with y'all, but y'all do not always have me. Again, Jesus is referring to Judas here, but he's also referring to every single other person in that room, including the disciples, including Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So what's he doing? Jesus is addressing Judas, but wh what does Jesus mean? What does he mean by the poor you always have with you? Is he saying don't serve the poor? Is he saying that the poor are not important? No. We know that Jesus loves the poor. The rest of Scripture encourages us in this. The rest of the Old Testament tells us God's heart for the poor even, uh, I'll give you just one example, in Luke 6, 20, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus is not downplaying the significance of the poor. And it's quite the opposite, really. He's using something so important as the poor to magnify who he is. That he is the very son of God. He is the most important person in the universe. For them and for us, he is our only hope. Of salvation. We must remember the context, right? Mary is giving this beautiful gift. She's showing her arguably reckless love to Jesus in the final week of his earthly life. Yes, serving the poor is important, but in this context and truly for all eternity, loving Jesus comes first. Loving Jesus comes first. If we do not love Jesus, all the volunteer hours in the world cannot outweigh the immense weight of our sin. 
There is nothing we can do to atone for our own sin. It is only the work of Christ that can bring us righteousness. Only the work of Christ through faith in him. What Jesus is saying to Judas and to the disciples is not demeaning or downplaying the poor or even discouraging us from serving the poor, but it's giving us a priority list. It's showing us what's primary. And Jesus doesn't primarily want your service. He wants your heart. He wants an intimate relationship with you. He wants you to recline at the table with him so that he can be with you, know you, and bring you peace. He wants you to humble yourself before him like Mary. Lay it all out on the table for him to clean up. Jesus doesn't want you to try and fake it till you make it. Clean up your act and come to him. He wants you to be real with him. He wants you to experience real love, the real love that he, that only he can give. Friends, Jesus isn't saying don't serve the poor. What he was communicating in his, to his disciples, what he's saying to us is that loving him is primary. Without our primary source of energy, without fuel, we are like a car without gas, a dead, lifeless piece of metal. We must have a real relationship to be sustained in this life, to be sustained in work, to be sustained in every single component of life. We must be in a relationship with Jesus to be able to do the secondary things, the important secondary things, the amazing and wonderful things like serving the poor, like loving and raising children, like giving away of your time and your resources, like pursuing people who are hurting, like loving people who don't love you back. Friends, if you are feeling tired, out of gas, run to Jesus. Fall down before your Savior and let it all go. Unbind your hair, open your heart, and give yourself over to the King of the universe. Let him fill you up so that you may truly live. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your beautiful words to us. That you are not demanding that we do this, that, and the other. That you are not demanding our work schedule look this way. That you are not demanding that our to-do list be ten items long. But, Father, that you ask, you, you draw us in. You desire a relationship with us. You desire that we recline at the table with you and know you. How we thank you. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you, we thank you that you are merciful and gracious to sinners like us. God, we pray now that you would encourage us and strengthen us. All these things we ask in Jesus' name.